So we'll go ahead and turn there as we begin our time together. And as you're turning there, uh, last time we met, Max taught through verses 1 through 8, in which Paul discouraged believers from taking one another to court for frivolous reasons, for reasons that were small. He didn't want them to do this because what Paul wanted uh, more than peace within the people of the church was for God to be glorified. And by taking each other to a secular court for small, insignificant reasons, to puff one another up, to make oneself look better, that was ruining the testimony of the church. It was tarnishing how people viewed the church, the people in the church, and ultimately how they viewed God. This leads us into verses 9 through 11. Let's read them together. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor homosexuals, nor thieves, nor the covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Such were some of you, but you were washed, but you were sanctified, but you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and in the spirit of our God. Let's pray together. God, we do thank you for your word. We're thankful um, just for the unchanging message that it brings. I pray that this morning you would uh, humble us before you, help us to um, just have uh, open and receptive hearts as we study your word this morning. We thank you and we love you. In your name, amen. The title for our lesson this morning is Such Were Some of You. Such Were Some of You. And the first point we're going to look at this morning is a hypothetical question. First point is a hypothetical question. Let's read verse 9 again. It says, Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Last time we met, Max, I think, went through nine hypothetical questions. Paul is in the pattern of asking these hypothetical questions to the church at Corinth. And summarized, he said that you could boil it down to one question. What's wrong with you people? Are you kidding me? What is wrong with you? The section is no different. You see, the people at Corinth, they sat under good, solid teaching so when Paul asked them if they don't know that the unrighteous will inherit the kingdom of God, it wasn't a question that really needed an answer. Of course they knew that. That's Christianity 101. That, that's like before 101. That's like in the syllabus. Like the top line is the unrighteous won't inherit the kingdom of God. What Paul was doing here is he was reprimanding them because they had lost sight of what the purpose of the church was and what they sh and how they should be acting. How many of y'all serve in Iwana or with the really little kids? Quite a few of you. Have you guys ever taken a look at them? I'm assuming it's probably my kids. Have you guys ever taken a look at them and you're like, what are you doing? Like, what made you think that licking the glue stick was a great idea? I mean, yes, I know it smells good, but really? Licking the glue stick, that was a good idea? This is exactly what Paul's doing here. He's reprimanding them. He's forcing them to answer the question for themselves. Really? Do you not think that the unrighteous won't inherit the kingdom of God? Are you kidding me? 
you've known this for a long time. He knows that they know the answer to this question. And he asked them this almost in a scolding manner because he wanted them to be convicted. He wanted them to answer for themselves. Of course I know that, but my life isn't reflective of that. When you walk into the foyer in big church, some of you just came from there, what are the two phrases that are up there? A high view of God and a high view of scripture, right? Those are pretty big important things in our church. That should be a couple of the main goals, not just, just for the church overall, but for individuals as well. Because if you have people that attend church that don't hold on to those principles, that don't view God in high regard, that don't hold scripture up and how it should be, what kind of church do you have? I'll tell you, it's an ineffective one. A church that doesn't have a high view of God is going to elevate men, is going to elevate humans in a way that they shouldn't be elevated. They're going to allow for sins in the church because, I mean, after all, we're human, right? Human sin, that's not having a high view of God. If a church doesn't have a high view of Scripture, it's going to be selective in what it teaches its people. It's going to be just giving messages that people want to hear. And they're going to bend the word to fit what they want it to say instead of what it actually says. The Corinthian church had lost sight of this. They were not holding God in high regard when they were allowing the external influences of the Corinthian culture into their church. They were being egotistical when they were sending each other to court because they wanted to make themselves look good. And they were definitely not honoring scripture because they were sending all their dirty laundry before the unbelievers so that they could be proven right, so they could have the upper hand on those in the church. So as we look again at the question that he asked in verse 9, do you not know the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God. First thing we need to do is understand, clarify who the unrighteous are. What does this word unrighteous mean? Well, the unrighteous are those who live in a pattern of unrepentant sin. Turn to Romans chapter 6. Romans chapter 6. Starting in verse 1, it says, what shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin so that grace may increase? May it never be. How shall we who died to sin still live in it? As believers, we've been cleansed by the blood of Christ. And therefore, our lives are to be in pursuit of righteousness. We're not to use the rightful grace that we have been given by God as an excuse to sin. Look down at verse 12. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its lust. And do not go on presenting the members of your body to sin as instruments of unrighteousness. But present yourselves to God as those alive from the dead and your members as instruments of righteousness to God. For sin shall not be master over you, for you are not under law, but under grace." Because we have been saved, we as Christians ought not to look at sin as something that we do because, I mean, after all, we're human, right? I mean, we're going to sin till the day we die. 
And so since I'm going to sin, but yet I've been forgiven, well, I mean, I guess I can go ahead and keep on sinning. That is a complete wrong mindset. That is an unrighteous mindset. We're to look at sin as something that Christ supernaturally conquered. Therefore, the desires of our lives are to be marked by holiness rather than death that sin brings. Paul had been around enough churches to recognize that once you allow sin to enter the church and once you allow it to go unchecked, it was almost a a death warrant for that church and its effectiveness and ministry opportunities would dry up if they aren't dealt with. That's why as we continue in verse 9, he brings up the sad reality. Point number two, a sad reality. Paul begins the second half of verse 9 by warning them to not be deceived. Unfortunately, this has to do with uh, the fact that the Corinthians were allowing their former selves, their, their former sins, and the teachings of the Corinthian culture to be allowed within the church. He's telling them, look, don't be deceived. You, you thought all these things were correct? No, they're wrong. You know they're wrong. And after he warns them to refocus back on the truth, he gives out a list of sins that if they go unrepented, they will keep the people from inheriting the kingdom of God, from going to heaven, from being saved. So before we take a look at this list, I want you guys to turn to Ecclesiastes chapter 1, verse 9. Ecclesiastes 1, verse 9. Get ready, we're going to be doing a lot of turning and reading this morning. So Ecclesiastes 1.9 says, That which has been is that which will be, and that which has been done is that which will be done. So there is nothing new under the sun. I wanted to read this verse, and I wanted us to, to start with this verse as we go into this list, because as we look at our society, as we look at the world around us, It seems that now more than ever, the sins that we're going to be talking about today are not only accepted, but they're being paraded as things to be proud of. I mean, we have a whole month to celebrate, quote unquote, gay pride, right? It's something that is pushed on our culture. And I want you to be at least slightly encouraged by the fact that we're not experiencing new sins. What we're dealing with today isn't something that's that God is shocked by. This didn't come out of nowhere. No, these sins have been celebrated. These sins have been around since the beginning, uh, since the fall. And so be slightly encouraged that God has given us answers on how to deal with these sins in a way that is honoring to him and how we can love others while we do that. Also, the sins that we're going to talk about today, they're not unforgivable sins. Spoiler alert, some of the people, as we read in verse Uh, 11, some of the people in the church at Corinth used to be these kinds of people. So as we take a look at these, um, don't see it as an us versus them thing. Paul is simply reminding them that this is how you used to be. Stop being like this. So the first sin that he gives out are fornicators. Fornicators, the Greek word used here is parnos, which is where we get the word pornography from. And, you know, we hear that word and we think of pornography in modern day 
culture of, you know, what it looks like today. But using this context, what Paul is conveying is a general sense of immorality. This word is used in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 16, where the writer says, See to it that no one comes short of the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springing up causes trouble, that it may be defiled. And here it is, verse 16. That there be no immoral or godless person like Esau, who sold his own birthright for a single meal. Was Esau known for his sexual immorality? Not really. I mean, he might have been. It's not discussed too much in scripture. Esau was known for being selfish, for wanting uh, to be the one that was puffed up, for selling his birthright for a bowl of soup, which if you're going to sell your birthright, do it from like a steak or something because soup stinks. Anyways, that's not the point of this. Esau was not known for sexual immorality. Here in this sense, it was a, a general uh, immorality, a lack of love for God and the things of God. So Paul starts off by saying, if you are immoral, if your life is marked by immorality, by being contrary to God unrepentantly, you will not inherit the kingdom. Next, he goes into adulterers. Adulterers, those who are unrepentantly faith, unfaithful in their marriages. Hebrews 13, 4. Marriage is to be held in honor among all, and the marriage bed is to be undefiled. For fornicators and adulterers, God will judge. Being married is good. Enjoying the physical relationship that comes with marriage is good and ordained by God. What the world is going to tell you, though, is that enjoying those marriage benefits outside of a marriage relationship is what you need to be doing. You need to know who you're compatible with. You need to make sure that you, uh, you know, have fun before you are tied down to one person for the rest of your life. That's not what the Bible commands. That's not what we see here. Adultery is being unfaithful in marriages. So... We're going to spend a, quite a bit of time on the next two points, uh, effeminates and homosexuals. Um, the reason being is because the world now is pushing these sins on us as things to be accepted and celebrated. The world is trying to normalize these sins, even to the point of legislating and uh, forcing acceptance upon those one thing to keep in mind, though, is that not just as we talk about these next couple, but as we look at all these sins, don't be like the Pharisee in Luke 18 and think like, man, I don't struggle with any of these. I mean, I'm good. I, I, I can't believe those people struggle with that. That's not the right attitude to have, right? It wasn't the right attitude for the Pharisee. We need to thank God that he has saved us and pray for those in sin, and we're also not to think of these people as the enemy. These people are sinners. We need to view them as our mission field. We need to share the gospel with them, the preaching of the good news, that Jesus can save anyone from any sin is what we should focus on. So the third sin that Paul lists out is the effeminate. The Greek word used here is the word for soft. In context, it refers to males who make their appearance soft. So guys, if you wear pink, I'm sorry. I'm just kidding. 
So in reality, this refers to a transgender person or a eunuch, uh, which was a male who either forcibly or voluntarily removed parts of their body to become more feminine. If you want to know more about what a eunuch is, talk to Daniel afterwards. He'd love to discuss with you about it. So what does the Bible have to say about the transgender issue? Turn to Deuteronomy 23. Deuteronomy chapter 23. You know, like I said before, we think that this is a new issue in our society. It's not. It's been going around for a long time. Deuteronomy 23. No one who is emasculated or has his male organ cut off shall enter the assembly of the Lord. You know, gender transitional surgery is nothing new. It was happening in the time of Abraham. In fact, this was so prevalent in the Old Testament times that it was part of pagan rituals, pagan worship. Men would castrate themselves and offer themselves up as male prostitutes to serve as a form of worship in their uh, temples. Here, God says that anyone who goes through this type of procedure, who willingly does this, cannot enter the assembly of the Lord if they do not repent of their sins. The, this, physic, this physical mutilation is, is a permanent act, right? I mean, once you start, you know, chopping body parts off, you can't be like, oh, just kidding, control Z, or start pasting things back on. You can't do that. That is impossible. It's a big permanent thing that is done. So the question needs to be asked, can people who have gone through gender transitional surgery repent and become followers of God? Turn to Isaiah 56. Isaiah 56 And let's start reading in verse 3. Isaiah 56, 3 starts, Let not the foreigner who has joined himself to the Lord say, The Lord will surely separate me from his people. And here, even in the Old Testament, God gave hope to the Gentiles that if they repented from their sins and followed the one true God, he wouldn't turn them away from being called his people, even if they were foreigners, even if they weren't uh, natural-born Israelites. Nor let the eunuch say, behold, I am a, a dry tree. So if a male goes through transitional surgery, what can they not have? Kids, right? So that's why they are described here as someone who is a dry tree. They cannot reproduce. Verse 4, for thus says the Lord, to the eunuchs who keep my Sabbaths and choose what pleases me and hold fast to my covenant. So yes, those who went against God's perfect design in humans for you know, males and females, for those of you that went against that design, that had that surgery, but now you have repented and desire to follow after Christ, verse five, to them I will give in my house and within my walls a memorial a name better than that of sons and daughters. I will give them an everlasting name, which will not be cut off, cut off as it were. But isn't that amazing? God does not look down as 
uh, people that have had the surgery as completely lost, completely gone, beyond redeemable. No, he says, look, if you repent of your sin, if you desire to follow after me, if you truly believe in me, I will accept you as part of my family. This is just another sin. Yeah, it has long lasting consequences, damages, but God will not turn them away. He graciously accepts them as sons and daughters and he gives them an everlasting name, just like he gives to anyone who repents and believes. We actually see a trans person get saved in Acts chapter 8. Turn there. Acts chapter 8. This is the story of the Ethiopian eunuch. In verse 25, Philip and his traveling party were heading back to Jerusalem after sharing the gospel in Samaria. So Philip is walking along, and let's pick up in verse 26. But an angel of the Lord spoke to Philip, saying, Get up and go south to the road that descends from Jerusalem to Gaza. This is the desert road. So he got up and went, and there was an Ethiopian eunuch, a court official of Candace, queen of the Ethiopians, who was in charge of all her treasure. So here's a man, as we talked about eunuchs, who was physically castrated in order to pledge his allegiance to Queen Candace of Ethiopia. And it's interesting that in their culture, this was not something that was looked down upon. You know, he wasn't some lowly person. No, he was actually very highly regarded. He was in charge of all of her money. He was in a very powerful position. He was someone of high regard. Keep reading verse 27. And he came to Jerusalem to worship and he was returning and sitting in his chariot and he was reading the prophet Isaiah. And what an amazing picture of God's providence and grace, right? This eunuch just happened to go to Jerusalem to worship. He just happened to be sitting in, in his chariot uh, reading the book of Isaiah, which is the theme. What is the theme of Isaiah? Hey, good job. A lot of you said it. For the recording, everyone said it. So everyone's going to get it right in Bible quizzing. All right, yes, salvation. And Philip just so happened to be sent by God to cross paths with this man. So verse 29, let's see what happens. Then the Spirit said to Philip, go up and join this chariot. Philip ran up and heard him reading Isaiah the prophet and said, do you understand what you're reading? And he said, well, how could I unless someone guides me? And he invited Philip to come up and sit with him. <clears throat> now the passage of scripture which he was reading was this. He was led as a sheep to slaughter and as a lamb before its shearer is silent. So he does not open his mouth. In humiliation, his judgment was taken away. Who will relate his generation? For his life is removed from the earth. This man was reading Isaiah chapter 53. He was reading Isaiah 53, and here's his response to that passage. The eunuch answered Philip and said, Please tell me, of whom does the prophet say this, of himself or someone else? Then Philip opened his mouth, and beginning from this scripture, he preached Jesus to him. Now, here's the key. Philip didn't go and like, dude, you're a eunuch. You've gone through this thing. That's disgusting. That is ter terrible. Start harping on the one sin that this man had uh, been involved in. 
he said, no, I, the, the bigger picture than that one sin is you are a sinner in need of Jesus. That's what he did. The salvation of this man was his bigger goal. That's why Philip focused on preaching Jesus to him. Verse 36, as they went along the road, they came to some water and the eunuch said, look, water, what prevents me from being baptized? Philip said, if you believe with all your heart, you may. And he answered and said, I believe that Jesus Christ is the son of God. This man showed an attitude of repentance and belief. And that's what Jesus in Mark 1.15 said is required of salvation, repentance and belief. And he ordered the chariot to stop. And they both went down into the water, Philip as well as the eunuch, and he baptized him. Quick side note, what did this man do before he was baptized? He repented and believed, right? So there shows us the order of how these things should be done. Did the baptism save him? No, not at all. He had already been saved. Baptism is simply an external declaration of service to the Lord. So if anyone ever tells you, you need to be baptized to be saved, first of all, no. Just point them to this passage and be like, no, repentance and belief is what is required for salvation. Verse 39, how does the story end? When they came up out of the water, the spirit of the Lord snatched Philip away and the eunuch no longer saw him, but went on his way rejoicing. What an amazing picture of salvation we see here, right? Could, could this Ethiopian eunuch, could this man do anything to revert the physical change that he had done to himself? No, that was a permanent decision. But did that, did that hinder God from saving him? Absolutely not. That is amazing grace right there. God's love, mercy, and grace provides hope for those people that have gone through this. There is hope for the trans community because of the grace of God. So what does the Bible say about homosexuality? That's about, you know, softness, about uh, the trans community. What does the Bible say about homosexuality? Well, the Greek word for homosexual is two words combined. The word man and bed. It's essentially smashed together, meaning a man who shares the bed intimately with another man. Turn to Levit Leviticus chapter 18. Leviticus 18. This verse is kind of hard to understand. Leviticus, Leviticus 18 verse 22. You shall not lie with a male as one lies with a female. It is an abomination. <laughs> Just kidding. That is extremely clear. There is no question what God meant by this. The sin of homosexuality is an abomination to the Lord. It is contrary to God's plan that he set for marriage, that he set for male, males and females, that he set for the family. Go down to verse 26 and look at what God tells Israel. But as for you, you are to keep my statutes and my judgments and shall not do any of these abominations, neither the native nor the alien who sojourns among you. The laws that God gave Israel, not just, you know, against homosexuality, but the laws that God gave Israel, he told them, look, this isn't just for you Israelites. If anyone aligns themselves with you, aligns themselves with me, they should follow 
my commandments. Verse 27, for the men of the land who have been before you have done all these abominations and the land has become defiled. We're going to take a look at what God is talking about here in a couple minutes. But one of the reasons the land they were living in was defiled because the culture at that time, the, the cities allowed and promoted homosexuality as a thing to be celebrated. Sounds familiar? Yes. Verse 28. So that the land will not spew you out should you defile it, as it has spewed out the nation which has been before you. For whoever does any of these abominations, those persons who do so shall be cut off from among their people. The phrase cut off isn't just like exile them. No, the phrase here cut off means cut their life off. So <laughs> execution. God says the penalty for committing these abominable sins in the Old Testament was death. That's pretty serious. Verse 30. Thus, you are to keep my charge that you do not practice any, any of the abominable customs which have been practiced before you so as not to defile yourselves with them. I am the Lord your God. Obviously, God hates the sin of homosexuality. But notice that these verses, they're talking about God hating the sin, right? It doesn't say that God hates the people that were committing this, these sins. There is some churches that, you know, their big uh, push is, oh, God hates gay people. No, God hates the sin of homosexuality. God desires for those people to repent and believe and follow after him. He hates sin. It's a huge difference. So why does the God remind the Israelites here in the book of Leviticus that he hates this sin so much and that the consequences of homosexuality should be so severe? Well, go to Genesis chapter 18. I'm sorry, 19. Genesis 19. And here we see what happens when a city allows sin to run rampant and allows anyone to indulge in their sinful desires. Genesis 19. Now the two angels came to Sodom in the evening as Lot was sitting in the gate of Sodom. When Lot saw them, he rose to meet them and bowed down with his face on the ground. And he said, Now behold, my lords, please turn aside into your servant's house and spend the night. Wash your feet that you may rise early and go on your way. He said, However, no, but we shall spend the night in the square. Yet he urged them strongly. So they turned aside to him and entered his house. And he prepared a feast for them and baked unleavened bread. And they ate. So Lot sees these two guys. Somehow he knows that they are angels. That they, He knows they're supernatural people. He walks up to them and says, hey guys, uh, I want you guys to stay at my house. And they kind of politely decline. It's like when someone offers you food and you're like, no, 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 that's okay. Okay, sure, I'll take it. At first, they tell him, nah, it's okay. We, we don't want to you know, burden you. We'll, we'll sleep out in the square. But Lot was like, no, you're here. I've already got a room ready for you. I've got food ready for you. Come on, stay with us. So they say, all right. So these two men go to Lot's house. They're hanging out. Verse four, before they lay down, the men of the city, the men of Sodom, 
surrounded the house, both young and old, all the people from every quarter. And they called to Lot and said to him, where are the men who came to you tonight? Bring them out to us that we may have relations with them. Y'all, this is a gross, disgusting situation. The men of Sodom had normalized homosexuality so much that it, notice it was both the young and old. All the males were involved in this. It was perfectly okay to do this. And to add to this gross narrative, they saw two new men come into the city and their first inclination was they want to rape them. It's disgusting. Verse 6, but Lot went out to them at the doorway and shut the door behind him and said, please, my brothers, do not act wickedly. Now behold, I have two daughters who have not had relations with men. Please let me bring them out to you and do whatever you like. Only do nothing with these men inasmuch as they have come under the shelter of my roof. A couple of points about these verses. First of all, what Lot did in offering his daughters to this mob was wrong. I'm sure they were sitting in the back going like, yeah, go get them, dad. Wait, you're, you're going to do what now with who? That, that was wrong. You know, Lot should not have done that. You know, Lot first tried to talk these men down using reason. He said, look, guys, you don't want to do this. You are acting in wickedness. You are acting contrary to God's design. And when that didn't work, I think he went into like fight or flight. And that's when he's like, God hates homosexuality so much. Take my daughters. That, that was wrong on both counts. He goes into fix it himself mode. He knew that God hated that sin so much that maybe he was thinking this was a lesser sin, but it doesn't matter. How does the crowd respond to this conversation? Verse 9, but they said, stand aside. Furthermore, they said, this one came in as an alien and already he's acting like a judge. Now we will treat you worse than them. So they pressed hard against Lot and came near to break the door. But the men reached out their hands and brought Lot into the house with them and shut the door. This group of men were so blinded by their lust that they almost started crushing Lot, trying to get to the door and trying to grab the men that were inside to bring them out. But the angels, using their supernatural power, joined Lot inside and shut the door. Verse 11, they struck the men, the angels struck the men who were at the doorway of the house with blindness, both small and great, so that they wearied themselves trying to find the doorway. So not only did they bring Lot to safety, they also flashbanged the crowd and they were blinded. They couldn't see and they were confused. And it's interesting. They were so ingrained in their sin that even though they were blind, they were still trying to get to the door. They were driven by their sin. We all know what happens to Sodom in the end, right? God judges them because of their unrepentant heart and their wicked ways. Turn to Romans chapter 1. Romans chapter 1. Verses 24 and 25 show us what happens even today when people let sin go unchecked. God gave them over 
in the lust of their heart to impurity, so that their bodies would be dishonored among them. For they exchanged the truth of God for a lie, and worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator, who is blessed forever. Eventually, God's going to shake his hands clean and be like, all right, you guys want to keep indulging your sin? I'm going to give you over to your sin. I'm, I'm going to let you do that. You keep going on in your sin and see what happens. This is what's going on with our culture, right? This is what, happen, what is happening with the LGBT community. For some, that is their religion. They worship the God of their own sexuality. Their whole identity, who they are, the people they associate with, is wrapped up in that sin. When you meet people like this, when you meet people that are blinded by the sin, and you will if you have not already, at school, in the workforce, when you go off to college, you will meet people. Remember, they are someone who needs to hear the gospel. They need to be shown the love of Christ. Be bold. Share the good news of Jesus with them. Be like Philip. Explain what God's will is for their lives. You will most likely be called a bigot. <laughs> you will be called uh, as someone who hates them because you don't uh, validate and affirm what they think they are. But that couldn't be further from the truth. By sharing the gospel with them, you are desiring their salvation. You're desiring for God to be honored. Show them the love of God by sharing the gospel with them, by actually speaking the gospel to them, speaking truths to them, but also by living a life that reflect God's plan for men and women. I told you I was going to spend most of the time on these couple points. So let's fly through the rest of the list. Turn back to 1 Corinthians chapter 6. 1 Corinthians chapter 6. The next sin that Paul calls out is idolaters. So anyone who puts anything above God on their priority list. And the easy ones that we use to, to poke at this are sports and money, right? If the overall desire, or we can say hobbies and money, if the overwhelming thought and desire of your life is, oh, I want to get better at sports. Uh, I need to go practice. Uh, I want to get better at guitar. I, I need to make more money. And that's the only thing that you think about. Well, that is your idol over God. God should be number one in all we do. Next is thieves, those who steal the property of others. Write down Ephesians 4.28. Ephesians 4.28. Anyone who has been stealing must steal no longer, but must work doing something useful with their own hands, that they have something to share with those in need. The opposite of stealing is being someone who works hard. I hope y'all aren't stealing. But if you are, one, stop it, repent. But also work hard because working hard is good. And you can use that hard work. You can use the benefits of that hard work, like this verse says, to share with those who have a need. Next is covetous. Covetous, having the overwhelming focused desire to have something that someone else has. This goes kind of hand in hand with idolatry. 
if you're coveting something that someone else wants, whether it's something tangible, like a car, clothes, looks, whatever it may be, or something intangible, like status or popularity or, you know, fill in the blank, that's a sin. So one way you can test that, you know, you, you can ask yourself, am I a covetous person? Do I covet what other people have? How do you react when other people have, let's just call them wins in their life? So, you know, your friend gets a new car. Are you happy for them? Are you excited for them? You know, dude, I'm so glad for you. I know you, you worked hard. You helped pay for it. How cool is it that your parents got you that car? And now you can drive me anywhere and, and I don't have to pay for gas. That's awesome. You know, do you have that mindset of being happy for good things? Dude, you got a 20 cent raise at work? Awesome. That's great. Dinner's on you next time. You know, are you, are you happy for them? Or is it, I can't believe that happened to them. It should have happened to me. They always get new clothes. Do you have that kind of hateful, uh, selfish attitude when it comes to the things that your friends have? If you do, that's a sign of covetousness because you're thinking, I want them. I deserved what they got. That's wrong. And it's a sin. Next, drunkards. Someone who the pattern of their life is marked by being inebriated and I include it either by alcohol or, you know, other substances. Let's just call them. You know, why is it so bad to be constantly drunk? Why is it bad to be constantly inebriated? First Peter 5.8, be a sober spirit, be on the alert. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. If you're constantly inebriated, you make bad decisions. Worse than that, you don't make good decisions. God-honoring decisions because you're not in your right mind. You don't have a clear mind so you can make good decisions. And the devil uses this. It says he prowls around like a roaring lion. The devil uses this to influence you to make bad decisions. So be on the lookout on how Satan is trying to make you stumble. Don't give him the opportunity by living in a state of inebriation. Next, revilers, speaking ill of others. If you have a tendency to gossip or to talk bad about people behind their back, if that's kind of what you're known for, if that's what you like to do, you know, you live for the gossip, you love talking about others, it's bad. That's reviling. Speak well of others. Be a good friend. Last is swindlers, those who cheat people out of money. You know, nowadays, you can think about like the telemarketer scamming calls. So I think this verse is saying that if you're involved in robo-spam calls, you're going to hell. I'm just kidding. Kind of. Work hard for your money. Don't cheat people out of money. Earn your money the right way, the proper way. So this concludes a list of sins that Paul calls out in these verses. And I, I called this point a sad reality for a couple reasons. First of all, this includes a lot of people, right? I mean, this is a pretty vague list where a lot of people struggle with one or more. And even looking at the context in our, um, in, in our passage in 1 Corinthians, a lot of people in the church had struggled with those. So it's a sad thing to think about. There are a lot of people who struggle with this. There is a lot of people that God says will not inherit the kingdom of God. 
But I also called it a sad reality because just about all of these things our culture celebrates. The Corinthian culture celebrated. Homosexuality, ah, it's your body. Do whatever you want with it. Uh, it's who you are. You were born that way. We, we should celebrate that. You know, you're not hurting anyone else. Be whoever you think you should be. Idolatry, no, there's no such thing as an idol. Just do what makes you happy. Do whatever it takes to get there. You know, same can be said for drunkenness, swindlers, idolaters, thieves, whatever. All of these are sins that the world celebrates. And it's sad. Our society celebrates these sins because they don't know the joy that comes with loving God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. The last point that we're going to look at this morning is a great reminder. A great reminder. Verse 11. But such were some of you. Remember, this is the context of the Corinthian church. There were people in the Corinthian church who were Gentiles who were saved and Jews. So it's this big melting pot of different kinds of people. So um, Paul reminds them, look, all these things that we did, this was you. You used to fall in these categories, but what happened? Look back at verse 11. But you were washed but you were sanctified, but you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and in the spirit of our God. I love that Paul calls out these three actions that God did in their lives because it doesn't matter who they were before they were saved. God didn't look at their sin and were like, oh, that one's too big. I can't save that one. No, God still saved them. These were people that you know, Paul didn't just throw a list of sins up willy-nilly. He knew people in the church that were struggling with those sins. And he said, you know what? You're starting to act like that again, kind of. That's who you used to be. But God saved you. He says three things. He says that you were washed. It speaks of someone who has new life, Titus 3.5. Regeneration is when God makes us completely new creatures. We are new creations they were sanctified. This has to do with your actions. Washing is the first step, right? You can't be sanctified. You can't be regenerated if you're still holding on to that sin. You need to be saved, but then you need to act differently. Sanctification is a process of being made more like Christ. Because we are saved, we are no longer slaves to sin anymore. Yes, you're going to struggle with sin for the rest of your life. But ask yourself, what steps are you taking to combat the old person, combat the person that you used to be? Do you see progress in sanctification in your life? Finally, justification. You are justified. The picture of justification is so beautiful. Before salvation, God viewed the Corinthians. He viewed us as guilty. But at the moment of salvation, we are justified. We are made right in his eyes. Romans 4, 22 to 25 talks about how God credits us righteousness. All we had on our ledger was sin. On our, on our list of who we are, it was fully sin. But at the moment of salvation, not only are, the, is, are those sins wiped away, but it is now full of righteousness. So what are we to do with this passage? First of all, don't view people who struggle with these sins as the enemy. Like I said, they are a mission field. They just haven't been saved. You cannot expect someone who is an unbeliever to act 
like a believer. You can't expect them to be washed, sanctified, justified. So what should you do? Share the gospel with them. Love them with your actions. It could be that by your boldness, by the way that you treat them, that they come to saving faith. For believers, consider your life before salvation. What sins did you struggle with before? Have you made any progress in, in the fight against those sins, in the fight against your flesh? Don't let your old self creep back into those, the, the old patterns creep back into your life. And for the unbeliever, it's pretty simple. Repent and believe. You will not inherit the kingdom of God if you continue in your sin. Doesn't matter if it wasn't listed here. If you hold on to your sin, you will not inherit the kingdom of God. Your future is in hell along with those listed here. I'm reminded of the hymn that we sing on communion some Sunday mornings, the hymn, Grace Greater Than Our Sin. And I think it kind of wraps up what we've been talking about this morning perfectly. It says, Marvelous grace of our loving Lord, grace that exceeds our sin and our guilt. There on Calvary's mount outpoured, there where the blood of the Lamb was spilt. Grace, grace, God's grace. Grace that will pardon and cleanse within. Grace, grace, God's grace. Grace that is greater than all our sin. Let's pray. God, we do thank you that you are true in your word, that you allow sinners to be drawn to you because of your love. I pray that you would help us to be bold in knowing the gospel, that you would help us to share the gospel clearly so that we could see those who are unbelievers come to a saving knowledge of grace. In your name we pray. Amen.